All right, good afternoon. Um, I'm, we're going to go ahead and get started. I'm Dr. Michael Cookson, and I'm uh, from the University of Oklahoma and have had the uh, opportunity and pleasure to be involved in the AUA guidelines now for about five years on the castration-resistant end. And uh, our faculty here is David Gerard here in the front row and Adam Keibel, and both of them are going to be helping and providing you guys with the um, information today and a little bit of a change in our format. We've tried to insert some ARS questions and, and things into um, the talk. So for those of you who haven't been in on some of these sessions, there's a mobile login on your phone with the um, ability to access the ARS questions. And we do want to have polling despite our small numbers in the audience today, but uh, we can't help the time and location of the course. Um, our disclosures are also well listed in the AUA, so know about that. Um, there is a an evaluation form that we would encourage you to fill out. Tell us what you like. Tell us what we need to do better. It's the only way, you know, that the courses get to continue is based on those evaluations. I'm going to go ahead and uh, move forward here. This. Um, for those of you who have your cell phones available, kind of know where you do the polling. And then it comes up pretty quick. So we've changed the course a little bit because the AUA guidelines are in progress of building in more information on advanced prostate cancer that includes metastatic and newly diagnosed hormone sensitive patients. So we're in the process of doing that. Um, so for that, that's one addition to, to our program this year. This is a uh, ARS pre-test question to test your knowledge and get you started on that. Um, in the charted study, improved overall survival was demonstrated with ADT plus docetaxel as compared to ADT alone in patients with, and you see the answers there, choices, high volume disease and CRPC, low volume disease and CRPC, high volume disease and hormone sensitive, or low volume disease and hormone sensitive. So go ahead and um, fire up those I iPads and iPhones and, and please show us that you can do the voting. That'll give us a good indicator of how the system's working too. All right, looks like most people did think that it was in hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, that's the charted study, and the best responses were seen in the high-volume patients. So the most common 50% uh, uh, got the right answer there. Here's a second question. ADT plus abiraterone as compared to ADT alone in men with hormone-sensitive disease has hormone-sensitive prostate cancer has reduced the risk of death from prostate cancer by, and you can see the various percentages there, so we'll have you go ahead and, and vote on that. Okay, looks like uh, there's a, a spread there. And incidence questions are always a little tricky, but I think we're going to find that it's somewhere in that 39% range. So this is just a schematic of, of the overview of disease progression and treatments for prostate cancer. And so you can see that there's many ways we can display this, but one way we've displayed it here is from non-metastatic through asymptomatic metastatic to symptomatic metastatic. And there's various 
therapeutic agents that are layered in below those where they may be useful in the patient as they go through. And we're going to cover all this pretty well today, so hopefully by the time we're done you'll understand the agents and where they're applicable in the disease spectrum. We know that prostate cancer is really um, a disease that uh, your outcome is highly related to the stage in which you're discovered, and this just simply reflects that. Unfortunately, with the, um, the U.S. Preventive Task Force Services not doing a lot of justice for prostate cancer screening, even though we are making some improvements there, we are left with the fact that a lot of men will be presenting with later stage and higher grade cancers, and we're going to see more and more of these more advanced disease states where we may not be able to cure them, and so our goal is going to be to try and reduce uh, the progression of the disease and delay the symptoms of the disease. Just from an epidemiologic standpoint, this was borrowed from uh, a summary by Howard Schur, but when you look at the incidence and the prevalence of these disease um, states, uh, you can see pretty significant numbers of men who will be at risk for these type of problems from the newly diagnosed localized to newly diagnosed metastatic, almost 10,000, um, about 30,000 men with these metastatic castration resistant disease states each year, and then there's even a, a large number of men who go through this PSA rise after initial treatment with hormonal therapy, estimated to be almost 50,000 uh, annually. So there's a large number of these men in the various disease states. We'll focus just briefly on that M0 state, which is in one sense is sort of a therapeutically or uh, in uh, medication-induced state where men go from um, newly diagnosed prostate cancer, progress through treatments, and then have a rising PSA despite no evidence of disease, and then uh, become resistant, but there's no radiographic evidence for this. Illustrate this in a case, we have a 65-year-old gentleman who has a rising PSA. He had an, a high-grade pathology, a seminal vesicle invasion of his tumor with a Gleason 7, underwent a radical prostatectomy nine years ago, salvage radiation therapy, then had a rising PSA, was placed on ADT. Ultimately, his PSA starts to rise again, and now it has a relatively fast rate of rise with a doubling time of under six months, despite the castrate level. He undergoes a staging workup and has a negative conventional bone scan and has only small volume adenopathy in the pelvis, so he would meet the criteria for what we would consider to be an M0 uh, patient. So we're going to discuss not only the definition of these M0 patients, which I've referred to, but the natural history and then some of the newer treatment options that are available for them. One thing that we need to make clear is that all men with a rising PSA on hormonal therapy do not require treatment. This is data from a, a different study looking at uh, bone health, but what they found was that men who have a rising PSA progress at different levels, partly due to their overall level of PSA, but perhaps most importantly due to their PSA doubling times. And men who have rapid doubling times, and in the studies that we'll show, usually they defined it as less than 10 months, those are the men that are at most risk. Whereas if you have a slower doubling time, your risk of progression is quite low, so you may be safely observed. So I think that's an important point. The two landmark studies that we're going to present were previously presented at GU-ASCO. 
So these um, slides are, are from that presentation. The first is the Spartan trial, and that was using apalutamide and its ability to reduce metastasis-free survival. And so basically, we'll show you the trial design in a little bit, but they put men on apalutamide or placebo in this disease state where they had a rising PSA and a rapid doubling time and showed about a 72% reduction in the risk of development of progression of their disease using uh, the apalutamide as compared to placebo. A second study got presented at the same meeting, and that was the PROSPER study, and that looked at the same type of trial design, basically enzalutamide as compared to placebo, again, in these men with a rising PSA, no evidence of metastatic disease, and a rapid doubling time, and almost identical separation of these curves. Uh, we'll talk about the meaningful part of that later, but these are pretty dramatic curves. You don't have to be a statistician to see that they're making a significant impact on the development of metastatic disease or death from prostate cancer using these two drugs. So back to our case presentation, we have this 65-year-old gentleman with a rising PSA. He's got a rapid doubling time. He's at high risk for progression based on the data that we've just shown. And so he could be treated with either apalutamide or enzalutamide. The caveat here, currently in the United States, the apalutamide has the FDA indication. We think enzalutamide will soon have that too, but it has not really come forward yet. Um, he's being monitored with intermittent uh, checks on PSA as well as um, imaging in, in follow-up. We'll now talk about metastatic disease patients who are still in a hormone-sensitive state. So these are men who present with newly diagnosed metastatic disease but have not been treated yet. We know that about 90% of these tumors will respond to ADT initially. However, um, ultimately, these cancers are going to progress. This is just a reminder of kind of our heritage, but uh, we've known since 1941 that prostate cancer is an androgen-responsive and androgen-dependent disease, and that the androgen receptor is highly expressed in these cancer cells, and stimulation of this causes progression and impacts on uh, cancer survival. Um, androgen deprivation certainly has been the mainstay to try and attack this type of tumor. We also know that the extent of disease is an independent factor when we look at how patients are going to do. And we can go back to 1989. Some uh, New England Journal publications also describe the extent of disease having the um, prognostic impact on how patients would ultimately do. And even in a study such as the bilateral orchiectomy with or without flutamide, most of us know that in meta-analysis there's about a 5% benefit to adding an antiandrogen to conventional ADT, but what this study showed was it really wasn't the additional oral antiandrogen that made the difference, it was the extent of the disease. In patients, whether they had an orchiectomy or the combination therapy did well, 51 months on average uh, for their survival benefit as compared to about 27 if they had more extensive disease. And we'll get into this in a little bit, but most of the, there's an evolving definition of what's extensive and what's not, but for clinical trial purposes, the charted study used any visceral metastases, or if you had four more bone mets and one of them was beyond the pelvis or the vertebral column. We know that we can use PSA as a surrogate to try and determine how you're responding. This is data from an intermittent trial 
But what they found was that if after six months of therapy, by about six to seven months, if your PSA was under 0.2, you were going to do quite well and have a very long response to the hormonal therapy, perhaps as much as 75 months on average. But when your PSA didn't, for, for example, if it stayed above four, your response was only a little over 13 months. So, but it's too late by then, because now we know you're not doing well. And so we have to come up with strategies at the time of diagnosis to really impact on the disease. I'm gonna skimp through that. Um, the patient here, new case presentation, a 53-year-old gentleman who presents with a PSA of 55. Uh, he had switched primary cares and got his first PSA. Um, he had an abnormal DRE and a biopsy that revealed high volume high-grade prostate cancer. He undergoes a staging workup and is found to have some retroperitoneal adenopathy, which already classifies him as metastatic when it's in the retroperitoneum, different than if it's in the pelvis. And he had multiple bone lesions greater than five. So he would meet that criteria for a high-risk, high-volume patient, as I just showed you in, in that um, definition uh, in the study that was done uh, called charted. So urologists are becoming more and more familiar with this information, but it's worthy of um, presentation in our course since we've never presented these kind of information in the course before. And the, the charted study was a randomized study that took men like this gentleman in our example, and they randomized them to hormonal therapy alone or hormonal therapy plus six cycles of docetaxel and then reevaluated them. They found overall there was about a one-year benefit in survival advantage for all comers using the combination of chemo and hormones. However, the biggest separation of about 18 months, year and a half, was determined in the high-volume subset and not really a significant benefit in the low-volume subset. So again, we think there's benefit. The benefit is the most in those patients who are determined to be high-volume. A second study done in Europe, the Stampede study, similar trial design using combination chemotherapy plus ADT as compared to ADT alone, again, showed significant survival advantage to patients using com combination chemotherapy. And again, it was around that 15-month mark. So we're seeing a pretty dramatic improvement in the survival of men by adding chemotherapy at an earlier stage. And prior to these studies, we only used chemotherapy really in the castration-resistant state. This was a summary of a meta-analysis that included a French study, too, but overwhelmingly the benefits are there in, in these studies, even when we combine the French study, which probably was enriched with a smaller number of patients and perhaps um, lower volume disease, but nevertheless, overall survival advantage. In addition to chemotherapy, we now know that adding additional androgen therapy to the mix is also important, and these were Sentinel articles published in the back-to-back -back in the New England Journal last year, looking at the value of abiraterone plus prednisone in these castration-sensitive or hormone-sensitive uh, patients. And this was the Latitude study, had over a 1,000 men in it, comparing ADT alone to ADT plus abiraterone, and you can see a dramatic improvement, 38% risk reduction in deaths from prostate cancer using this combination. And Stampede, which has an arm of everything we try to do, um, had a similar uh, study design and a similar benefit 
using the combination of abiraterone plus ADT with a 39% risk reduction in death. So these are major moves forward for men with newly diagnosed hormone-sensitive disease that I think all of us should use in our practice. And, and this gentleman, back to the case presentation, he did receive some uh, therapy for his bone health in addition, and we're going to cover that later. Uh, he initiated his docetaxel and completed six cycles of therapy. Um, and he had a significant regression of his soft tissue disease as well as some of the bony lesions. So the take-home message for these hormone-naive or uh, hormone-sensitive or castration-naive, they're, they're different terms still, um, is that chemo-hormonal therapy is now a standard of care, probably best for those high-volume patients. ADT plus abiraterone is now a standard of care. We have to decide and no good guidance yet on if there's a superiority of one over the other in a certain situation, and those trials are ongoing. Um, there are men who present with newly diagnosed high-risk, very small volume metastatic disease, and the role of treatment of the primary after six months of best systemic therapy is, is undergoing uh, clinical trial enrollment now, and I believe that it won't be too long where we'll be talking about what that kind of therapy would look like, but right now we'd like to encourage the the role of a clinical trial. So I've tried to show you guys the value of adding the hormonal therapy and the chemotherapy in the hormone-sensitive state. We've talked about the new progress that's been made in the M0 state, and we'll emphasize that as it incorporates into the guidelines based on the Spartan and PROSPER trial. There is a third trial that has not been completed yet. The enrollment's been completed, but the um, follow-up is not long enough yet using a third agent, um, which we may have by the time we come next year. Um, so these guidelines are going to undergo um, a, an, an update and, and constant gardening to try and provide you with the most updated and accurate information. But we can see that all of these treatments that we first noted benefit for in advanced stage disease are moving back in that disease spectrum and when we move them back we're getting better benefit than we saw when we only applied them on the castration resistant end of the spectrum. Just an acknowledgement we've been doing a couple of courses across the country and so some of the slides that were presented here were a composite of uh, some information by Todd Morgan, the University of Michigan, and then we did use some of the plenary presentations from GU ASCO by Dr. Hussein and Eric Small. So that's the end of our first uh, talk, and um, the next talk is gonna be um, on the guidelines, and I, I hope it's been updated. We, we had to embargo the guidelines, and so there's been a little bit of a glitch. If it all falls apart, we'll hook up a Mac at the end here, but. Uh, when uh, David Gerard presented the guidelines at the plenary session yesterday, up until that moment, really, the slides weren't kind of out there in the public domain. So we have had some technical glitches getting those incorporated into the course, but hopefully we'll, we'll make it past that. I'll see if they surprise me here. Um, this is not it, right? The, uh, the second talk is what I need is the guidelines talk. There we go, that looked like it right there. Maybe they just had a duplicate in there. There we go. Thank you. So um, now I'm going to give you a, a, an overview of some of the guidelines uh, for prostate cancer. These are deep di dives that we have a little bit later on the various presentations looking at the hormonal axis treatments, 
as well as chemotherapy, bone health and bone targeted therapies, as well as immune therapy. So um, I'm going to go pretty quick through my overview to let them um, elaborate more on a deep dive. One of the things that we've tried to go across the country and for the last five years spent a lot of time doing is uh, encouraging urologists to be primary caregivers for men with advanced and metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Part of that is incorporating a multidisciplinary care model into your practice, and the other part of it is using evidence-based therapeutic options to help guide the management. So this should not be hard for you guys, given what we just presented, but another ARS question is, in patients with non-metastatic CRPC, a significant reduction in the progression to metastatic disease has been demonstrated with which of the following agents? And you can see them listed there. So go ahead and vote for your pick on those choices. So I didn't do my job because we still only got about 75% uh, picking the right answer, which is the apalutamide and enzalutamide. There may be some benefit to abiraterone, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but it hasn't been studied in this setting. So lesson number one, urologists should be the primary caregiver for men with prostate cancer. And this includes as they progress through these disease spectrums, especially to CRPC. And so another way to look at it is patients may progress through a disease spectrum, but they should not have to progress through specialists. And there is a lot of value added when we take command and charge of, of their care. We diagnose and treat them on the front end. We understand the disease progression as they go through the continuum. We know about the various managements of and options available to them, and we can help coordinate their care across disease specialists such as medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, and even supportive care as needed. Lesson number two is we need to establish a multidisciplinary care model, which is usually the best available model for the practice that you currently have. And so there's no one size fits all in this. We've published some stuff on some theoretic models, but the idea is that patients now deserve to have a multidisciplinary approach um, even though we have these guidelines in various ways that we think are available to patients, there's nuances to it. And sometimes there is no one right answer. So you have to kind of guide the patient through based on shared patient care and, and what side effect profiles versus the symptoms, et cetera. There have been lots of examples in urology now, but also in other tumor models where patient satisfaction and patient outcomes and even survival are impacted when we coordinate the care and use a multidisciplinary model. So it's in our patient's best interest and it provides better care. This is one theoretical model and it works really well for patients when it's possible, but it's not always possible. Um, the urologist, the oncologist, the radiologist, they could meet different people on the same day using a navigator to kind of help them through the clinic and if you, are, if you have a large practice group that has access to medical oncologists as well as that, radiation, et cetera, you can pull it off. If you don't have that, then it doesn't have to be this model. There's other models which I'll show you. But patients really seem to value, especially if they come from a distance and it's efficient for them, may not be as efficient for us. 
But when patients can do that sort of one-stop shopping, um, there seems to be value in it. If it's not possible, we understand that. And so the virtual models could be same day going to different clinics or could be different days, different clinics. But the idea is that the patients are discussed and there's a common treatment plan for them that everyone's on the same page for and we try to deliver that. So the key ingredients to this are things such as a navigator. The use of advanced practice providers and nurse practitioners cannot be understated. Those are extremely important in our practice. Weekly meetings that help us to present the patients, to look at the things that are needed to help guide decision making as well as to coordinate the care. It's really good if you have a shared EMR that's possible, it really saves a lot of time and energy. Um, they still need a primary care, and many of these men with prostate cancer will come to our clinic and they don't have a primary care. It's really important, especially as we go through side effects and different profile treatments for these patients. We need to be able to discuss these type of things. Lesson number three is offer evidence-based therapeutic options. I think that's why whoever signed up for this course is here. We want to try to provide you with that to the best of our abilities and, and staying current with what's out there helps to provide patients with the best. There are other guidelines and we don't claim to be the only ones in town. We are partial to the AUA guidelines because they are very rigorous and evidence-based and graded accordingly, but there are other guidelines and we recognize that most of them speak a common language. Some of them can look a little more like a compendium than, uh, than an algorithm or really helping you, but that is kind of the way th those are designed and so you just have to see what works best for you. Uh, again, this is that changing landscape with the various treatment options and opportunities along the way because these drugs have indications and these windows open and close. And so it's really important to understand that. These are six of the agents now that are out there for men since 2004. Many of them have really come forward only in the last five years. And there are benefit. Most of them have had survival benefit. The newer agent that I just alluded to is different in that it's metastatic free survival as opposed to overall survival because the data is not mature enough yet to know if there is survival there. This is a timeline showing again the where these drugs got approval and the years in which they did it. Um, you can see that if I wish I could put 1941 on here to 2004, there was very little going on. Maybe some mitoxantrin for palliation, uh, maybe some strontium to try and uh, relieve bone pain with very toxic, a lot of toxicity. But a lot of interest, a lot of um, area of excitement and discovery that's occurred in the last five years particularly. And with these greater availabilities in treatment, that's where really the guidelines are supposed to help you because there's so many choices out there, it complicates decision-making. What we really want to do is help you to know when is the time to administer a treatment and when is the patient eligible. And so we made these index patients. They're not perfect, but they are really kind of the way in which many of these drugs got their indications, presence or absence of metastatic disease, degree of symptoms, performance status, and whether or not they had seen prior dose of taxol therapy. And at least as we sit here today, these, for the most part, are still holding up. They were then compartmentalized into six index patients. All of this is available to you on your app, through the web, on the, under the AUA guidelines, and also they have pocket versions. So I apologize if these don't present as well as they should. Um, the updated guidelines, which we'll go into in a little more detail as we go through, 
Number one is the index patient one that really addresses the M0 status. And that is where clinicians, we used to just come up here every year up until now and say, we really don't have anything in this space. You can do some things if you want to, but there's really not no standard of care. Now we know that clinicians should offer apalutamide or enzalutamide with continued androgen deprivation therapy in these men with non-metastatic disease at high risk for progression. And so that is the major first step. Guideline statement number two is that clinicians may recommend observation with continued androgen deprivation for those patients, like we talked about, um, who may not be appropriate because they're not at high risk, or for those who do not want or cannot have one of the standard therapies. There's also a little wiggle room in case they do want treatment, but for some reason couldn't access that form of treatment, where such as a second generation um, androgen synthesis inhibitor to select patients such as abiraterone and prednisone may be an option, um, but again, it's a, the level of evidence for that is not as good, and we're still advising against chemotherapy and immune-based therapy in this M0 stat status. I already showed you earlier the apalutamide trial. This was the trial design. Again, non-metastatic, rising PSA, rapid doubling time, less than 10 months. They could have lymph nodes as big as two centimeters below the level of their pelvic region, but that's it. And they were randomized two to one to apalutamide or placebo. Significant separation of the curve with a reduction in progression or death using the apalutamide. This translated into almost 24 months of benefit, so that's like two years on average before the development of radiographic progression. So I, I, I think most of us believe that that's a pretty meaningful endpoint. And so they were able to conclude that this was a significant improvement in uh, progression-free survival for these patients. Um, we'll talk a little bit later about some side effects and. Uh, some of the uh, specifics of, of the trial as we get into more of the androgen deep dive. The PROSPER study was also presented. Now, the SPARTAN trial has been published in the New England Journal, and the PROSPER study is being reviewed for publication. Until it's truly published, though, we don't have the availability of the data to really analyze it, and so when you see a difference of grade A versus grade B, I think what you're seeing is we just... We were hopeful that it's going to come through, but until it's published, all we really had to rely on was the abstract presentation. Two-to-one randomization, enzalutamide to placebo, very similar endpoint, primary endpoint, as you saw in the other trial. And again, significant separation of those curves with approximately a two-year benefit to delaying the progression of their disease um, in patients treated as opposed to those who weren't treated. Um, it also delayed time to antineoplastic therapy. Um, we don't have time to show you every little detail of the studies, but both of the studies um, were able to delay symptomatic progression as well. So again, from this PROSPER study, in conclusion, uh, there were significant benefits and a significant delay that got it um, at least the attention that we believe we'll need for a, a full endorsement by the AUA guidelines as soon as it's published. Index patient two are the patients who are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, but the difference here is they do have radiographic evidence of metastatic disease. And this is just simply a refresher from what we've already known. 
abiraterone, enzalutamide, docetaxel, and CYP-T, CYP-T, are all options for these patients in this setting. All of them had a, a significant indication uh, based on a registry trial. This was the Cougar 302, over 1,000 men, um, looking at the use of abiraterone, 1,000 milligrams a day with prednisone as compared to uh, prednisone alone. And we can see there were significant benefit. This was the 2015 Charles Ryan publication in The Lancet that showed uh, significant survival benefit. Um, and uh, the data is shown there. The enzalutamide is used in the state space. It was the PREVAIL trial that got its approval. 160 milligrams of enzalutamide as compared to placebo. And again, um, a uh, randomization schedule one-to-one -one, as you see here. Co-primary endpoints included overall survival benefit as well as progression-free survival, both which hit the mark. Docetaxel is now kind of an uh, we already know about it, but it's always important to present it in the context of, of the trials. And it was a every three-week regimen compared to a weekly regimen compared to mitoxantrone. And in those patients treated with the every three-week regimen, there was a significant survival advantage compared to weekly and compared to mitoxantrone. So it was never compared to a pure placebo, for example. The immune-based therapy, cipulucil T, the only immune therapy that we have approved for prostate cancer, was got its approval from the IMPACT trial. They had 500 men. They did a two-to-one randomization of this and found a significant reduction, relative risk reduction in death from prostate cancer by about 22% using the immune-based therapy as compared to the placebo. Index patients three are different in that their symptoms are more profound. They still have metastatic disease and a good performance status. And what drops off here really is the CYP-T because it was designed for asymptomatic and minimally symptomatic patients. So the other indications that we've already talked about remain strong here. And then the addition is radium-223. So radium was used in patients both pre and post chemotherapy and there was um, the caveat that they did not have visceral disease but symptomatic bony lesions. And this was the uh, study that got radium-223 approved. It was um, radium plus best standard of care to best standard of care alone in these symptomatic men. And it showed um, a significant improvement in survival of patients using a bone-targeted therapy that we'll get into in more detail later. Index patients five are symptomatic, but they and they have progressive disease, good performance status, but they'd already undergone docetaxel chemotherapy. The second chemotherapy approved in this space, cabazitaxel, had a study that got its approval in over 700 men using that as compared to mitoxantrone, and there was a survival advantage for the salvaged second chemotherapy, um, second line chemotherapy in in this trial. And then this is just sort of a list of the post-docetaxel potential therapies that could be used that include enzalutamide, abiraterone, cabazitaxel, and radium, depending on the clinical presentation and their symptoms. So that was kind of a whirlwind tour through the guidelines, but the main thing that I wanted to emphasize to you is that I do believe urologists should be the primary caregiver for men with advanced prostate cancer, 
I think establishing that multidisciplinary care model for these patients will provide you with the framework to provide them with the best care possible. And we talked about the key components, a patient navigator, could be a nurse, could be a medical assistant, having APPs, having nurse practitioners in your practice as well as PAs to help guide the therapy. We talked about the benefit of using these evidence-based um, guidelines to kind of help guide where in the process the patient is, where they may be eligible for treatment, and um, I think those are really helpful, and the guidelines are going to continue to be updated uh, by the AUA for sure to provide you with the most updated information with the emphasis this year being on those M0 patients. So with that, I think I'm going to have David Gerard come up and, and give his presentation. Great. Thank you, Mike. Uh, my name is David Gerard. I'm uh, Vice Chair of Urology and Associate Director in the Carbone Cancer Center. And the recognition that the androgen receptor plays an important role in uh, castrate-resistant prostate cancer uh, was a major discovery leading to targeted agents with tolerability. Uh, these are drugs that really any urologist uh, can utilize, and many do, but it's important uh, the side effects in the indications are critical to be aware of when, as we're utilizing these drugs. And really, uh, that's what one focus of this particular uh, talk will uh, be on. So uh, let's go ahead and do a, a question here. So direct mechanisms of action for enzalutamide include all of the following except uh, inhibits binding of androgen receptor to DNA, inhibits binding of, anti of androgens to androgen receptor, inhibits nuclear translocation of AR, or inhibits PSA transcription. Do I need to advance to get to the, uh, okay. So if you all wanna vote on things. Okay, so. That's, that's uh, correct, so inhibits uh, PSA transcription, which is uh, incorrect. So, so we'll uh, talk a little bit more about mechanisms and side effects. Uh, one more question here. Common side effects associated with enzalutamide include all of the following except. So a little bit, uh, uh, this was a little bit of a trick question because we said, we said common side effects um, and uh, seizures are a relatively uncommon side effect uh, and certainly nobody chose that. Okay, so uh, we'll talk uh, again in this lecture about abiraterone and enzalutamide. Uh, those are actually focused on pre-chemotherapy and post-chemotherapy and realize that there are other indications that you heard uh, earlier uh, in this hour with regard to enzalutamide being used in M0 uh, patients uh, with castrate-resistant prostate cancer, but also the indication for abiraterone in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. 
Again, the side effects are similar uh, between these different spaces and important to be aware of. Objectives include uh, discussing mechanisms for castrate-resistant cancer. Uh, we'll talk about uh, uh, mechanisms of these drugs and understanding the side effects and some uh, briefly talk about some of the new applications. So to start with a case, uh, this is a 73-year-old who had radiation therapy for high-risk prostate cancer. I was placed on androgen deprivation therapy, and three years later, he developed a rising PSA while on Lupron therapy, uh, increased from 13 to 26 over the course of eight months. Testosterone is castrate, bicalutamide was added with a transient effect, and he's developed new bony metastases noted on imaging with enlarged pelvic and retroperitoneal lymph nodes. So this is really a situation uh, we're talking about a patient is, uh, that is uh, index 2 beginning to uh, develop some symptoms as well, index 3. Uh, what might we consider for this uh, individual? So the finding that the androgen receptor was amplified in castrate-resistant prostate cancer was really a major event in, uh, in the understanding this disease and really what a lot of these therapies are focused on. As you see on the right, over 73% of samples at autopsy exhibit AR amplification. On the left, you see immunohistochemical staining uh, for a patient with advanced prostate cancer in a lymph node. I'm not going to be talking about the uh, non-ligand-dependent mechanisms. Realize that they involve co-activators. There are other backdoor pathways that are involved in uh, activating uh, uh, AR signaling. But because these two agents we'll be discussing, and indeed the th third agent with apalutamide, really focus on ligand-dependent mechanisms, uh, we'll be focusing more on this uh, side of the graph. We mentioned this finding of, uh, as you can see in the middle here, actually, let me go. You can see in the middle here, uh, androgen receptor amplification. Uh, clearly, if there are low levels of ligand, uh, amplification of the androgen receptor would lead to increased uh, binding and sensitivity. There's also a remarkable uh, promiscuity of the androgen receptor. There are mutations that primarily occur in the DNA uh, uh, or in the ligand binding domain of the androgen receptor that makes it sensitive to uh, glucocorticoids, uh, progesterone, uh, and other um, pre-hormones here. So that can also drive this. And then finally, uh, the primary action of abiraterone is to work uh, on the, this mechanism of adrenal androgens, and we'll talk further about that. So abiraterone is an androgen synthesis inhibitor, and it really functions to inhibit the lyase and hydroxylase activity of CYP17. One would anticipate that based on this, you'd have increased mineral corticoids, and this leads to a lot of the side effects that we actually see uh, with that uh, medication. As uh, uh, Dr. Cookson mentioned, uh, there was a phase three trial uh, looking at uh, abiraterone in the post-docetaxel space. And this demonstrated and was really the first signal we had uh, demonstrating an improvement in overall survival in patients that received abiraterone plus prednisone uh, versus um, uh, placebo. So, so all secondary endpoints, including PSA progression, PS, uh, progression-free survival, and PSA response rates, favored the abiraterone group. This was then looked at pre-docetaxel chemotherapy 
Now this was published in 2015. And what one can see here, this is looking at uh, PSA free survival, uh, really a remarkable response in this group, about an eight month improvement. And again, survival was uh, improved as well uh, by about 20%. An important thing is quality of life. And this emph uh, slide emphasizes this. The median time to opioid use was delayed uh, when patients were placed on abiraterone. So clearly this has a significant outcome in uh, quality of life of patients on these agents. So the mechanism of abiraterone explains its side effects. And again, uh, as uh, this functions to inhibit the lyase and hydroxylase, uh, you begin to see increased activity of ald aldosterone and cortisol. And this would lead to uh, increased fluid retention. Uh, so you see hypertension, edema, you see uh, uh, low potassium uh, in, in these patients. Additionally, there are tran elevated transaminases uh, that are also involved in uh, that uh, are in a common side effect with these drugs as well. So looking uh, at the side effects a little closer, this is from the second trial, the pre-chemotherapy. One can see uh, elevated uh, transaminases are seen much more commonly. Uh, you can also see uh, hypertension, hypokalemia, fluid retention, and because of these uh, fluid issues, uh, atrial fibrillation is also more common in the patients on abiraterone and prednisone. So how do you minimize the side effects of abiraterone? Well, taking it on an empty stomach will actually decrease uh, its absorption, uh, giving it with prednisone uh, 5 milligrams BID. And there are some uh, individual or some physicians that will give it once a day and find very similar effects, but the on-label is twice a day. Uh, it's important to keep an eye on electrolytes as well, well as liver function tests. You want to check those two weeks after starting and then monthly for the first three months and then quarterly. And four, if you do run into a situation where there are elevated liver function tests, uh, you want to hold the drug until it, uh, those normalize and then restart at a lower dose. Routine assessments for hypertension and fluid retention are also important. And this is where a primary care physician can help manage these patients. And then remember drug interactions. Uh, there is some changes in the metabolism of Coumadin on these for these patients. Uh, as uh, Dr. Cookson had mentioned, uh, there is a new indication for abiraterone in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, so again, pushing this earlier in the disease. Uh, the latitude study, uh, which he mentioned, and again, this is really remarkable. Here's an oral agent you can take in con uh, combination with androgen uh, deprivation therapy to delay cancer progression about 18 months. And up to this point, we had seen very uh, minimal side effect or minimal uh, progression rates in these patients uh, with the agents we had previously used. But again, side effects are the big issue. Um, and we talked about some of those. These patients are going to be exposed for this drug for a longer period of time. And of course, there's also the financial toxicity associated with these drugs as well and getting them paid for. So which patients should we use abiraterone in? Well, FDA approved for men before uh, uh, chemotherapy and after docetaxel chemotherapy. And then also in this space with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Again, we emphasize the side effects, hypertension, hypokalemia, fatigue, steroid-induced hyperglycemia. 
So when we think about the kind of patient that we would want to put on uh, this drug, because they're on prednisone, you want to be careful about patients that have very, are very brittle diabetics, uh, obviously gastric ulcers, uh, rapidly progressive disease. Uh, in a situation where you have visceral metastases or rapidly rising PSA, we'd want to shift more toward likely docetaxel chemotherapy in that subpopulation. Uh, patients with chronic infections, because of the prednisone, you'd uh, want to avoid that. Uh, patients also with significant cardiac disease uh, would be poor candidates for abiraterone. And finally, uh, alcoholics, uh, active viral hepatitis, abiraterone should not be utilized. So uh, our patient, uh, moving along in his history, had a good response to abiraterone with an improvement in his PSA and pain management. Now it's 10 months later, the PSA is rising again. It's gone, gone up to 50 nanograms per milliliter. He's beginning to have pain issues with this. His performance status is still good, an index three patient. He receives docetaxel chemotherapy in this setting uh, just because of the pace of his disease. And he's had some improvement, but his uh, PSA goes down and then begins uh, to slowly begin rising. So what would the, be the options in this situation? Well, uh, certainly on the list uh, would be another oral androgen receptor singling inhibitor, uh, which is enzalutamide. This uh, drug was really rationally designed uh, to target uh, AR signaling, and it has uh, increased affinity uh, to the androgen receptor. Uh, it's about five to eight, uh, ten, or seven to ten-fold higher affinity than uh, the earlier first-generation bicalutamide and these other agents. In addition, it impacts multiple steps in the androgen receptor signaling pathway, including inhibiting nu nuclear translocation of the androgen receptor, as well as inhibiting association of the androgen receptor uh, with DNA itself. Realize that apalutamide uh, has a very similar mechanism of action, essentially affecting all three uh, of these points here. And it's thought, uh, at least in animal models, that apalutamide uh, has uh, increased activity compared to enzalutamide. Uh, but this has never been tested in patients in a head-to-head -head comparison. The other thing to realize about apalutamide is this does not, uh, drug does not cross the blood-brain barrier, uh, which enzalutamide does. So potentially in patients with uh, seizure disorders, that might be a better choice. Enzalutamide was first approved in the post-chemo space, and in this study of 1,200 men, uh, you can see that uh, survival uh, was uh, markedly improved in these patients on the order of about five to six months, uh, essentially translating into a 37% reduction in the risk of death. In the pre-chemotherapy space, uh, there were multiple endpoints that were looked at, at and this is one of those. And this is looking at radiographic uh, progression-free survival. And it's really quite a remarkable response, even in this pre-chemotherapy space, uh, between the patients that got enzalutamide and the patients that were placed on placebo. Another uh, quality of life uh, phenomenon is extending the, amount, the time you need for the initiation of chemotherapy. So when this is used as an agent earlier in the course of the disease, uh, one can see you can delay that about 18 months. 
Now, uh, side effects with enzalutamide uh, are multiple. Uh, they include fatigue, and this is especially notable. Older patients uh, are, that already have a significant amount of uh, or decreased activity levels uh, are patients that may not necessarily tolerate this drug well. Uh, hot flushes are common. Uh, seizures were actually seen at, at a significantly higher level in the post-chemotherapy space. Uh, in this pre-chemotherapy space, the difference between the placebo and the enzalutamide arm were less marked, but there is a, a, a warning, uh, a label warning with this uh, in patients that have uh, pre-existing issues with seizures. Hypertension also is more common on enzalutamide. Uh, also falls, so there are some neuro neurologic issues uh, that can create uh, falls in these patients. And again, elderly patients may not be, uh, this may not be best for a first-line uh, kind of a agent. So how do we uh, minimize the side effects of enzalutamide? Well, you can decrease the dose from 160 to 80 milligrams. Uh, the, realize, too, that the enzalutamide can also uh, affect uh, serum levels. Uh, there also is a dose reduction uh, if there's profound uh, fatigue in these patients. Uh, that's the approach we, should, we would consider. Take care with medications that lower uh, seizure thresholds. And also, dose holds can help uh, prior to restarting uh, at a reduced uh, dose. And the half-life of enzalutamide is about eight to nine days, so you would want to uh, obviously go at least that period of time before restarting it. So what kind of patients would we focus on? It's FDA approved for men with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer before and after chemotherapy. Patients, uh, it does cause profound fatigue, uh, hypertension, uh, constipation, diarrhea, rare seizures, and uh, other neurologic issues. So patients that are poor candidates uh, are these ones that have a history of seizure, strokes, or falls. Patients who already have significant fatigue and elderly patients are less optimal candidates for enzalutamide. Now the question arises, which should go first in advanced disease? We really have minimal data to, to help guide us in choosing between abiraterone and enzalutamide. Toxicity considerations, uh, again, be aware of abiraterone, the hepatic dysfunction associated with it, uh, fluid access, hyperglycemia, enzalutamide, basically uh, fatigue and falls. Unique situations where you may have rapid disease progression, instead of considering uh, these oral agents, uh, you may want to go straight to docetaxel. And we'll talk briefly uh, in, the, in the next lecture that I give uh, about this whole issue of neuroendocrine small cell, cell variants and the role that uh, etoposide and cisplatinum play in that setting. And then as I mentioned, there is a significant amount of financial toxicity uh, to these, for both these agents. So take-home points, enzalutamide androgen receptor signaling inhibitor uh, pre and post chemotherapy. It is also in the M0 space now, as you heard earlier today. Contraindicated in men who have a seizure history, the side, some of the side effects are located there, are noted there. And again, in patients who cannot tolerate systemic steroids, this might be a better option for these patients. With regard to abiraterone, it's a synthesis inhibitor, inhibits the, P7, uh, the CYP17 gene. Uh, it's used pre and post chemotherapy. It has to be given with prednisone, 
Many of the side effects uh, are associated around uh, prednisone, but also the mechanism of action of the drug. And it's preferred in patients with a seizure history or severe baseline fatigue. So elderly patients may be, uh, it's a little easier to start uh, on abiraterone. So uh, just acknowledging some of the individuals who contributed to, to these talk earlier on. And we'll move on to the next lecture now. I think Dr. Keibel will uh, now spend that. Yes, please. Yes. So the article is currently uh, in in review. Uh, it has not it has not made it into the guidelines yet uh, because the uh, article has not been published. But it should happen within the next several weeks. So although it's not in the guidelines just yet, uh, it likely will be moving in that direction very, very shortly based on um, the impending pu publication of this article. We got placed in this sort of unusual situation. We kept waiting, waiting uh, before this lecture uh, and before this course for that, uh, for that to be approved. Correct. Well, we break it up a little bit so that none of the speakers got too, too hoarse. So I'm going to talk to you for a little bit about bone health, radiopharmaceuticals, and their use in advanced prostate cancer. These are my disclosures. I put my acknowledgments right at the beginning. Steve Bajoran and Dave Benson uh, contributed to the development of this talk. So this is uh, your uh, pretest question. Denosumab and zolindronic acid both cause and only one of these is correct, osteonecrosis of the jaw, hypercalcemia, nephrotoxicity, and ototoxicity. We'll advance. I think there are only about four people in the audience, or five, that are actually answering some of these questions. And uh, uh, the vast majority of people got this correct. It's a little bit of a trick question. It's, uh, uh, let's... Actually, can we go? That's a, a, I think it, this answer is a little different. Never mind. Keep on going. I think it said hypercalcemia, and this says hypocalcemia. Anyway, the issue of bone loss uh, is clearly uh, clinically relevant in patients who have castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Uh, the median age of the patients with castrate-resistant uh, disease is, is the elderly. This is a patient that already is at risk for uh, age-related decrease in, in bone loss. Uh, ADT is clearly in and of itself associated with bone mineral density loss, uh, increased risk of osteopenia, osteoporosis, and fracture, which obviously is the thing we're worried about the most. Uh, they lose about 2 to 4 percent of their bone mineral density in, even in the first year on androgen deprivation therapy. And this fracture risk increases depending on the study you're looking at, somewhere between 20 to 50 percent. And, uh, and then there's on top of that the issue of bone metastases, which clearly weaken the bone and make it more likely to have a fracture at that location. Uh, as you can tell, the uh, bone loss uh, is clearly a problem for patients in the age group that have castrate-resistant prostate cancer or prostate cancer period. Uh, they're elderly. Uh, many of them have had previous fractures. Uh, a family history of hip fractures associated with the risk of fracture. Low body weight. 
Uh, and as we know, the elderly lose body mass as they get older. Uh, cigarette smoking and excessive alcohol consumption is obviously not a problem for everyone, but clearly you have to recognize this is associated with a fracture risk. And then on top of that, our prostate cancer patients, most importantly, are on androgen deprivation therapy, but they're often treated with multiple other drugs that we're not always, uh, don't always realize decrease bone uh, density and increase the risk of fracture, for instance, radiation therapy or proton pump inhibitors. This is data that really shows that the fracture rate increases in a dose-dependent manner when patients are, are treated with androgen deprivation therapy. So uh, it, let's see if I can point successfully, yes. So if we look here, you can see as you increase the number of doses of androgen deprivation or even given orchiectomy, you can see that any fracture increases uh, with the increasing uh, dosing, as does, maybe not quite as dramatically, but you're clearly seeing a trend with uh, fractures, uh, any fracture requiring hospitalization, which is obviously the worst kind. I mean, if you have a, a hip fracture that requires hospitalization, that's a lot worse than, say, a vertebral fracture, which causes pain and discomfort. Uh, but doesn't necessarily uh, immobilize the patient. And overall survival is affected by this. So men with a history of androgen deprivation and a history of a skeletal fracture, compared to men on androgen deprivation with no history of a skeletal fracture, you see a decrease of approximately three years in median overall survival. So while this is obviously an association, not causation, I think we can see that uh, clearly, there's a, the, that uh, fractures while on, on androgen deprivation therapy portend a worse outcome for patients that uh, are in, on androgen deprivation. So there are baseline tests that we generally get on these patients. Uh, bone mineral scan using DEXA. Uh, this is the de definition of osteopenia, a T-score between negative uh, 1.0 to negative 2.5. Osteoporosis is a more dramatic drop in the T-score. And then uh, you should repeat it about one to every one to two years. In my clinic, we do this fairly easily by just having a nurse in charge of uh, the androgen deprivation. And then every year, she remembers to go ahead and order the test. Uh, blood tests such as calcium, creatinine, and vitamin D uh, can be useful in terms of evaluating, and particularly vitamin D levels. Uh, I, it's really quite common to have low vitamin D. I'm smiling at myself because last summer I actually had a fracture, and they checked my vitamin D level, and it was low. And I, I admit I don't spend a lot of time in the sun, but I drink a lot of milk. So uh, we recommend clearly smoking cessation, ETOH moderation, and weight-bearing exercise. I mean, exercise where you stress the bones increases the density of the bones and can decrease the likelihood of having a fracture. The AUA guidelines state that clinicians should offer preventive treatment, supplemental calcium, vitamin D, for uh, fractures and skeletal-related events for patients who have castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Vitamin D and calcium, there's no specific dosage recommendations in the AOA guidelines, but there is good data out there that would indicate that a higher dose is better. So the National Osteoporosis Foundation indicates that calcium should be about 1,200 milligrams per day, and that vitamin D should be between 800 and 1,000 international units per day. This is a forest plot analysis looking at a vitamin D, a meta-analysis looking at hip fracture and non-vertebral fractures. And what you can see here for the higher dose, hopefully people can see this, is between 700 and 800 international units per day. You can clearly see that this favors vitamin D, decreasing the likelihood of fraction, uh, fracture, excuse me, a 26% risk reduction. And if we look at non-vertebral fractures, it's about a 23% reduction. But if we have lower doses of vitamin D, this says 400 units here and here, you can see that there's no uh, improvement in terms of the fracture risk. So when you give the patient the dose, it should be. That's why we recommend 800 international units a day. 
What about calcium? So calcium alone does not prevent uh, bone mineral density loss, and there's a lot of conflicting data out there about whether calcium uh, increases the risk of both cardiovascular events but also fatal prostate cancer. It's very interesting when we were developing the guideline how strongly people felt about this, and it was something that was very difficult to come to consensus of. But it's particularly important, and I personally think you should be giving uh, calcium, but it's particularly important in patients that are receiving zolendronic acid and denosumab because there's a really profound risk of hypocalcemia. That's why I was a little confused by that, uh, the, the, the question and answer. I think the original question said hypercalcemia, and these drugs are associated with hypocalcemia. So since the calcium level goes down, which isn't good, you need to supplement these patients. Uh, calcium is better absorbed in divided doses, so you don't want to take one dose a day. You want to divide it into two. And calcium citrate is probably absorbed better than, than calcium carbonate, so it's probably a better, a, better, a, better, a better one to use. So the AUA guidelines recommendations for bone health in CRPC patients is clinicians may choose either denosumab or zolendronic acid when selecting a preventive treatment for scale-related events for castrate-resistant prostate cancer in patients with bony metastases, so patients with metastatic disease in the castrate sta state the recommendation is to treat with one of these two agents. So zoendronic acid is a bisphosphonate. It inhibits bone reabsorption. It's given as an IV infusion, 4 milligrams Q4 weeks. It's the only bisphosphonate to demonstrate a benefit in metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. And there have been other studies that have looked at some of the other bisphosphonates and have not demonstrated a benefit. And it clearly decreases the rate of skeletal-related events versus a placebo. Now, clearly, this toxicity. Osteonecrosis of the jaw, we're going to go into this more, more detail in a minute or two, but you really need to make sure that these patients get a dental exam before you put them on this drug. Uh, hypocalcemia, and that's why calcium supplementation is so important, and monitor the levels of calcium. Nephrotoxicity, and you need to reduce the dose if they impaired renal function, so not only does it contribute to the nephrotoxicity, you also need to adjust the dose on the base of renal function. And the patients can have flu-like symptoms which doesn't happen very frequently, but can be a little uh, debilitating to the patient. So you baseline uh, creatinine clearance. This used to be the kind of thing you had to, you know, when you're in medical school and as a junior resident, you figured out how to calculate on a calculator. Now the form tells you what it is, just goes ahead and gives you the creatinine clearance. Uh, you give the drug on the basis, so this is for people who have a normal creatinine clearance. It's 60 milligram, uh, milliliters per minute, adjusted 4 milligram infused over no less than 15 minutes, and you do it every three to four weeks. It's important to ensure the patient is hydrated. That decreases the risk of the nephrotoxicity. And uh, you know, slower infusion times have been uh, shown to improve renal clearance and, and reduce the incidence of renal toxicity. So here you have how you should reduce the dose as the patient's creatinine clearance uh, goes down. Uh, and in fact, if the creatinine clearance is less than 30, it's really not recommended. Denosumab is a human monoclonal antibody that's against rank ligand. Uh, the, uh, the uh, receptor is activated by the nuclear fact, uh, the NFK B ligand, and it inhibits osteoclast-mediated bone destruction. So it stabilizes the bone through rank ligand. It's given as a sub-Q injection, 120 milligrams every, every four weeks. So a sub-Q injection is a little easier for the urologist to give than to give IV, IV uh, at least in most cases. Toxicity is very similar from an osteonecrosis of the jaw, again, recommending a dental exam, and the hypocalcemia. Notice we don't have the nephrotoxicity down here. This is what osteonecrosis of the jaw looks like. Uh, if you uh, uh, suspect osteonecrosis of the jaw, it, it's exposed bone. 
in the maxillofacial area that occurs in association with dental surgery, and it can uh, occur spontaneously. People can get it who aren't on these particular drugs. And if there's a working diagnosis of osteonecrosis of the jaw, which would be no evidence of healing after six uh, weeks of appropriate evaluation in dental care, uh, and there's no evidence of metastatic in the uh, disease in the jaw or osteoradionecrosis uh, from radiation. This is just in general. I mean, the key thing is to avoid having this happen in the first place. Risk factors for osteonecrosis of the jaw include cancer, radiation therapy. I don't mean radiation therapy to the prostate. I mean to the, to the, to the uh, jaw. Uh, corticosteroids, steroids, poor hygiene. Really important that these patients take good care of their teeth. Uh, poor diet, dental work and trauma. Uh, alcohol and tobacco use, uh, particularly chewing tobacco, not a good idea. Coagulopathy, chemotherapy, infection, uh, and bisphosphonate or denosumab therapy. So the key thing is to evaluate the patient beforehand, and if they need to have anything done, have it done uh, prior to putting them on these drugs. You want excellent oral hygiene, limit alcohol and tobacco, get dental assessment prior to starting the, the, the bone-directed therapy, and then the recommendation is actually that every six months the patient should be visiting a dentist. Probably a good idea anyway. Uh, avoid extraction of teeth. Dental procedures once bone-targeted therapy is stopped. So the problem is, is many of these agents permanently alter the bone. So you can't stop it and then allow, and allow the bone to go back to normal and then go ahead and, uh, and, and, uh, and do the dental work. And so you need to warn the patient about this and warn them about ill-fitting Ill -filling dentures. If it, if it occurs, uh, you can hold the bisphosphonate until the site has healed or stabilized. Again, like I outlined, uh, there's obviously a cost of that in terms of fracture, uh, and uh, there is concern that that's not going to help. Uh, current treatment is really empirical and it involves things like antibiotics, oral rinses, pain control, and a limited debridement obviously should be done by an oral surgeon, not a urologist. Cases refractory to conservative management may benefit from interventional inter therapies. Uh, and hyperbaric oxygen. So again, if this happens, refer them to a good oral surgeon, have them take a look at them and come up with a plan. Option two, what, what sh uh, with two options, which should, would be the best one for the patients with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer? Well, there's actually a randomized trial that compared the two, roughly, uh, roughly uh, 2,000 patients, a phase three randomized trial in patients, again, with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. You can see that clearly denosumab is the top one. The bottom one is zoandronic acid. Denosumab performed better. No difference in overall survival or time to disease progression. So this is a treatment that's around bone health, not around cancer therapy. So you can see here's a comparison of the hypocalcemia. It's clearly more with denosumab than the zoandronic acid. Osteonecrosis of the jaw, a little bit more with the denosumab than the zoandronic acid. Again, this tells you the more effective drug unfortunately has the higher side effects. What about bone-modifying agents in other disease states? And this is not something that's covered by the uh, AUA guidelines. What about castrate-sensitive prostate cancer with bone mats? It was a randomized trial that compared zoandronic acid uh, to placebo and found no uh, increase in scale-related events. This was published in 2014 by Matt Smith. It was a CLGB trial. You can see these Kaplan-Meier curves essentially completely overlap. Not useful in that disease state. What about non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer? Denosumab was found to increase the bone metastasis-free rate, okay? In other words, the likelihood of developing metastatic disease in the M0 state. It didn't specifically address the, the scale-related event. 
Uh, but this, uh, there was no improvement in overall survival, and the FDA did not approve this indication, I think in large part because of concern about the side effects. The risk-benefit ratio really wasn't there. So in the setting of bone-modifying agents, don't prevent skeletal-related events or improve overall survival. However, what about preventing bone loss, which is obviously central to what we want to do? Uh, there's something called the FRAX, uh, which is actually used in the NCCN guidelines. Uh, it's an algorithm which was re uh, released by uh, the World Health Organization, an online calculator, and you can look at the probability of fracture, uh, just of anybody, but specifically you can look at for your patients. Uh, and the ten if the 10-year probability of hip fracture exceeds 3%, or the 10-year probability of ma major osteoporosis-related fractures greater than 20%, they probably should be put on an agent. And the FRAX calculator just does it for you. You plug in all the things and it'll tell you what's going on. And again, have my nurse do this. So uh, the concept is increased bone mineral density will decrease the fracture risk. This is just in general. I mean, our internist colleagues put patients on these kinds of drugs all the time. And you can give zolandronic acid. It's a much lower dose and uh, much less frequently. Alidronate, this is uh, what I've used in the past. I like the weekly dose, though sometimes insurance companies don't reimburse for the weekly dose. And lastly, denosumab is also approved in this space. So there's no clear advantage to denosumab here, and it's, clearly, it's got, a higher, uh, got a, higher, a higher cost. So in conclusion, bone health issues, you don't want bone loss and or metastatic disease. Patients with castrate-resistant prostate cancer should be offered calcium and vitamin D supplementation. I think that's bread and butter, bread and butter urology. Patients with bone uh, metastatic disease should be offered zolandronic acid or denosumab. I, I agree with this. I think denosumab is preferred because it's slightly better, but sometimes there are uh, increased costs. Insurance companies will pay for one or the other. And lastly, there is more hypocalcemia and osteonecrosis of the jaw with denosumab. Patients on ADT should have a baseline uh, uh, evaluation uh, and ongoing assessment for fracture. These are just patients that are on uh, just on androgen deprivation, and you should consider bone-modifying agents if the frax is, is high. So lastly, just briefly, I'm going to go through radiopharmaceuticals and prostate cancer. Uh, Dr. Cookson presented this data, so I think it's a little repetitive, but it's worth driving home the point. So radium-223 is uh, an agent that mimics calcium. It's very chemically uh, similar, so it targets the bone and ends up uh, in, uh, in the sites of metastatic disease. It forms complexes with the bone mineral hydroxyapatite uh, in areas of increased bone turnover. So remember, it's hitting the soil, not the seed hitting the area of high turnover, which is where the metastatic disease exists. It emits an alpha particle, which is high energy and short wavelength. That is important. We're going to look at a nice little figure of that in a second. And that induces double-strand break, uh, 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 breaks in the cancer cells and therefore leads to their death. This is a nice little cartoon, and what you can see is here's a metastatic deposit. The radium-223 goes to this area because there's high bone turnover, not because there's, uh, it's a site of metastatic disease. Uh, and because it's an alpha emitter and doesn't go very far, the bone marrow is relatively spared. This is the randomized trial that was talked about previously. I think one of the key things is these are patients with known visceral metastases. Sometimes there's some confusion. Lymph node disease is not a visceral metastasis, okay? And in this trial was included patients that had metastatic disease to the lymph nodes up to, I believe, three centimeters in size. Uh, the, uh, but obviously, this agent doesn't target those metastatic deposits. So in the future, we're going to see combinations of this drug in combination with some of the other systemic agents we're going to talk about, which aren't targeting the bone specifically. So anyway, it was a randomized trial. And what you can see is clearly overall survival right here favored the radium-223. 
with a benefit of about three months. Hazard ratio is, is 0.7. We looked at time to first symptomatic skeletal event. We see a benefit as well, favoring the treatment uh, with, uh, with radium-223. So again, even though now we're treating metastatic disease and making the patient live longer, obviously by uh, uh, not affecting the bone, but affecting where the cancer is, we decrease the likelihood that the fracture is going to occur at that area of bone weakness uh, and decrease the number of skeletal-related events. And importantly, it's symptomatic skeletal-related event, which obviously is, is, is the ones that we worry about the most. So summary, this is a standard. Clinicians should offer this for patients who have good performance status, symptomatic bony metastases, and no known visceral disease. And it can be given either pre- or post-docetaxel. So many of these drugs are targeted towards the pre-docetaxel state or the post-docetaxel state. Uh, th this one, in particular, can be used on both sides. The expert opinion is that this could also be offered in patients who had symptomatic bony metastases for metastatic castrate-resistant uh, disease with no visceral disease. The idea is patients sometimes have poor performance status because they have bone pain, and by actually targeting the bone pain in an, in an agent that's fairly well tolerated, uh, we can improve patients' uh, uh, outcomes. I think that's it. Are we taking questions now, or are we just keeping on going? Okay. So uh, Dr. Gerard's going to come back up and talk about the role of chemotherapy for metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Yeah, I don't know if everybody wants to just stand up for a moment. It's, we're in the seventh inning here. Just stretch out a little bit. Uh, we have uh, left some, we've left some time uh, at the end of the sessions uh, for questions and should be able to, uh, to talk about things uh, then a little more in depth uh, if there are any other questions. So. Okay, very good. So uh, we'll, we'll start with this uh, pretest question. Uh, which of the following is incorrect regarding the use of taxanes for patients with CRPC? Uh, the tropic trial demonstrated improved overall survival with cabazitaxel compared to mitoxantrum. Either cabazitaxel or docetaxel can be used for some CRPC patients after prior docetaxel. Cabazitaxel has an equivalence response rate at 20 versus 25, but is less toxic, and neuropathy and tearing side effects are increased in cabazitaxel as compared with docetaxel. Good. Well, we have some, some work to do. It's actually the tearing side effects uh, in the neuropathy uh, are, are similar um, um, or decreased with the cabazitaxel in some of those. So that's the correct answer here. So uh, this is what we'll plan be planning to t talk about in the next 20 minutes. We'll talk about these improved chemotherapeutics. And realize before 2004, all we had was mitoxantrone. Uh, these were the first uh, intravenous uh, drugs that were approved. Docetaxel in 20, uh, 2004, cabazitaxel in 2010. Uh, we'll talk uh, about the similar me mechanisms of action of these two. Uh, we'll talk about the clinical states of use, and they still have a use uh, in the current formula. And indeed, moving forward, as we begin to move these oral agents earlier and earlier, uh, we're beginning to develop uh, slightly different algorithms, and I suspect these will change over the next couple of years. We'll talk about comorbidities with these drugs, special situations to consider platinum, and also briefly touch on biomarkers.
Starting off with a case, uh, this individual had radiation therapy for locally advanced disease, uh, developed a PSA to 7 nanograms per milliliter shortly after treatment. He was treated with Lupron, the PSA natured at 0.8. PSA began rising. And this individual has bone pain, multiple osteoblastic lesions, and importantly, a new liver lesion, a PSA of 56 now. So treatment options. So given the pace of disease of this individual and the fact they have visceral disease, uh, docetaxel would be very reasonable uh, to think about for this individual. Uh, you've seen this slide before. Again, we'll be focusing uh, in uh, docetaxel, which is here. Uh, as patients become symptomatic, our indexed uh, three patients, and also cabazitaxel is generally used uh, for docetaxel failures. The mechanism of action of these two drugs is very similar. They both bind to tubulin and promote the assembly of tubulin into microtubules. So it essentially results in an inhibition of mitosis. Docetaxel was the first drug to be approved in metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. And at the time, it was really a major shift in the management of these patients. Uh, this was all for a three-month improvement in survival, and, and docetaxel given uh, every three weeks uh, compared to mitoxantrone, uh, again, was about a three-month improvement in survival. Uh, the SWOG9916 trial, which compared docetaxel and estramustine versus mitoxantrone and prednisone, resulted in about a two-month improvement in survival. Again, there was an improvement in PSA-free uh, uh, survival as well and other quality of life parameters. So what are the side effects that we need to be concerned about with docetaxel? Fatigue uh, is significant with these drugs. Uh, nail changes in one, and for the fatigue, actually uh, some patients are given Ritalin to help minimize this. Uh, nail changes and good nail care is important when you're treating these patients. Uh, the sensory neuropathy is really quite striking, especially in the feet. Uh, the use of uh, cooling stockings uh, during chemotherapy can help mitigate that. Uh, patients can notice uh, also uh, uh, an obstruction of the lacrimal ducts. And I do remember when we had, uh, were using this as in a neoadjuvant trial, uh, we uh, saw a significant amount of uh, lacrimal duct obstruction. This sometimes requires the place of, placement of ceramic stents. And then finally, uh, peripheral edema is common as well. Febrile neutropenia uh, is also uh, seen in, with uh, both this tax 327 as well as charted. Uh, in Europe, it seems to be a little more prevalent. Perhaps there was less use of uh, growth factor support in these patients. So who's the ideal patient for docetaxel? Symptomatic metastatic CRPC. Uh, patients with visceral disease, liver metastases, rapidly progressive disease. Generally, uh, we uh, would use this in this modern era after at least one second-generation androgen pathway inhibitor has been used. And uh, as was mentioned earlier, uh, it's being used now with androgen deprivation therapy for metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Again, this tends to be, uh, this is being used for patients with more uh, than four uh, metastases. What are comorbidities of concern? Performance status is critical in these patients, and generally it's used for performance status zero to two, but realize 
that sometimes patients with that are wheelchair bound for greater than 50% of the time, that is ECOG status 3, may actually improve their status with chemotherapy treatment. So this really needs to be dealt with on a patient by patient basis. Uh, there are fluid overload due to third spacing with docetaxel, uh, even with dexamethasone. A peripheral neuropathy is significant. It's important to mo monitor liver function tests in these patients. Uh, because of the increased fluid issues, there is an increased risk of arrhythmia. And again, prednisone and dexamethasone are frequently used in these patients, and this can create issues with brittle diabetics. So what about second-line agents in the patient who has failed docetaxel? Well, realize that there are a subset of patients that may benefit from additional docetaxel in that setting. If it's been temporarily uh, a long time uh, since they got docetaxel, uh, and, and also if they continue to respond uh, throughout, the uh, throughout the course. course. But another uh, option is uh, cabazitaxel. Uh, this is very similar in structure uh, to docetaxel. Uh, there are simply two methyl groups uh, that have been re uh, that are replacing a hydroxyl group. And it was really optimized in, in culture uh, for docetaxel uh, failures. This was the first trial looking at cabazitaxel post-docetaxel therapy. It co compared mitoxantrone, uh, looked at overall survival. And indeed, there was about a three-month improvement in survival of cabazitaxel. Remember, again, this was a different era before oral agents. Uh, it was, uh, this was published back in 2010. Uh, side effects are very similar to do docetaxel. Febrile neutropenia, uh, diarrhea, and fatigue. And it's, the neutropenia can be really quite striking in these patients, and it's a very dangerous side effects. So giving them adequate... Uh, support uh, with stimulating factors uh, is critical. There is some uh, newer toler tolerability data uh, with lower dose capacitaxol. Uh, so this was an interesting study. They powered it to just show equivalence. It was essentially a non-inferiority study. Uh, they compared 25 versus 20 of capacitaxol. Again, the rationale for doing that was to see if you could improve the side effects of this drug. And indeed they did. One can see here, outlined in blue, uh, that a grade three to four side effects were significantly reduced with 20 of cabazitaxel. Uh, the febrile neutropenia was markedly reduced as well, uh, as were the other side effects. So in summary, cabazitaxel is approved for docetaxel failures. It is less toxic at 20 versus 25 with similar cancer responses. It's important to support these patients with prophylactic growth factors. And there are some patients that may tolerate cabazitaxel better than docetaxel. Uh, but in general, it's very rare that cabazitaxel is used before it. And as initial therapy, um, there was a, a trial which I didn't mention uh, but cabazitaxel is non-superior to docetaxel. But again, here in the United States, docetaxel is generally your first-line intravenous agent. So uh, what about special situations? There are situations that uh, we'll see where patients present with uh, liver metastases, extremely bulky lymph nodes, um, low PSA in the setting of a very high volume, 
are primarily lytic rather than blastic bone metastases. And in this kind of situation, it, it may be worthwhile biopsying the metastatic deposit. This is a situation, a uh, case uh, from uh, two years ago, where this patient was actually treated uh, initially with Lupron and was actually uh, getting intermittent Lupron here. Uh, then the PSA began to go up, got abiraterone, and what one can see is that there was very little response to the abiraterone. So they blew right through that uh, and was started within a month on uh, uh, docetaxel. They had a response, but really had a blossoming of their disease uh, with innumerable liver lesions, uh, bony and lymph node metastases. This patient actually got a biopsy at this point and was found to have one of these androgen indifferent variants. Uh, it was actually a small cell variant. And realized that as we uh, move forward, we're beginning to see the, these types of variants more and more frequently uh, after uh, the treatment with oral agents. So androgen indifferent uh, uh, CRPC variants are very rare as a primary finding. Two to three percent of prostate cancers will. But after AR-targeted therapy, it's now ranging from 13 to 25 percent. There are six subtypes that have been, rec uh, that have been recognized uh, by uh, the Prostate Cancer uh, uh, Foundation Working Group. Uh, these are three of them right here. Realize that small cell carcinoma makes up about 50% uh, of these uh, androgen indifferent variants that occur. These do uh, frequently express neuroendocrine markers, uh, such as synaptophysin and chromogranin. This is staining, shown on the right here. But realize that most pathologists will actually make this diagnosis based on the morphology of the actual uh, slide, and these are really secondary. So again, this, uh, in these situations, they look like small cell, uh, or they look like carcinoid tumors. Typically, these are androgen receptor negative and lack PSA secretion. So if your patient is getting worse, PSA is not going up, uh, think about this kind of disease. And importantly, and especially for the residents in the room, uh, this is the, the treatment of choice. Generally, it's a platinum-based therapy uh, with etoposide. So I wanted to mention uh, several newer studies and the recent recognition that DNA repair gene alterations are really common in metastatic and castration-resistant prostate cancer. Shown on the left here is a study that was published a little over two years ago in Cell. And one can see here that uh, there are alterations in these DNA uh, repair genes, such as uh, BRCA1 and 2, uh, ATM, and it occurred in about 23% of men who died from prostate cancer. It also uh, clearly uh, increases with the progression. So this is looking earlier in the disease. This is a paper by Colin Pritchard that, that was published last year. The other thing to realize is that there are more individuals that have germline alterations in this setting as well. And what you can see here is uh, this is looking at patients uh, with metastases and what we see is that about 11 or to 12 percent of patients with metastatic prostate cancer have a germline alteration in one of these DNA repair genes. Uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2 represent the, the majority of these. So when you're sitting uh, talking to a patient in clinic, I now ask them routinely uh, whether they have a family history of, of common cancers. 
whether they have uh, especially a family history of breast cancer. And this is moving forward is going to be worked into likely the guidelines uh, of earlier disease. The reason that these are important is that there is evidence now that platinum-based chemotherapy may improve outcomes in these BRCA2 and ATM-deficient tumors. Uh, this is a really uh, was an observational uh, study, a very early study, uh, phase two, looking at this. Uh, and there are now several randomized studies that are ongoing. Now, it's important to remember performance status plays an, a role in chemotherapy. And I brought this up uh, to make uh, several points. One is this is a, a way of beginning to predict outcomes with castration-resistant disease. Uh, one can look at the factors such as albumin, hemoglobin, uh, alkaline phosphatase, and PSA. But really, one of the strongest factors for predicting uh, outcomes is actually the performance status. And the one typical performance status measurement that we use is the ECOG. Uh, performance status one is uh, the individuals restricted in physically strenuous activity but ambulatory and able to carry out work. Uh, ECOG status two is they are able to carry out all self-care but unable to carry out work activities. Uh, they're up and about for 50% of waking hours. Uh, ECOG 3 is capable of only limited self-care, confined to bed or a chair more than 50%, and then ECOG 4 is completely disabled. Again, chemotherapy, uh, most of my colleagues that give this primarily uh, often look to give this ECOG status 0 to 2, but again, there are ex certain exceptions where they'll consider it for an ECOG status 3. So I'll end by talking a little bit about potential biomarkers for therapy. And it is interesting when a large uh, trial is done, um, such as done here with cabazantinib, uh, uh, which is a VEGF and MET inhibitor, you'll see this remarkable uh, change. In, this is looking at PSA, uh, I'm sorry, this is looking at tumor burden. You'll see some patients that have a marked uh, um, in improvement in the disease uh, and others that don't. And again, you see this, you can construct these kind of waterfall plots for many of the studies that are done. So can you really identify this subgroup here from a biopsy uh, that would be a responder to this agent? Well, one situation where that's been put into practice is using androgen receptor splice variants to help identify those patients who may be resistant to enzalutamide or abiraterone. Now, just to show you what these are, this is a schematic of the androgen receptor. It's made of, of the N-terminal domain, uh, the DNA binding domain. There's a hinge region here, and then the ligand binding domain. So this is where androgen receptor comes and binds to the gene. Uh, this region commonly uh, will develop mutations. And as I mentioned earlier uh, in my talk, uh, my other talk, that when you have a, a mutation in this region, it can uh, bind other types of uh, androgens and even uh, estradiol. You can also, it converts uh, first-line uh, anti-androgens such as bicalutamide. It can convert from an antagonist to antagonistic effect to an, ag an uh, agonist uh, through mutations in this region as well. So uh, what these variants are is actually truncation of this so that you lose uh, by, uh, this region that binds 
uh, androgen. And this acts as uh, a, uh, goes ahead and binds the DNA and will go ahead and generate these androgen response elements. And this is just showing waterfall plots of patients that were enzalutamide treatment, uh, this treating, uh, this is looking at uh, patients that if you had uh, androgen uh, receptor variant 7, uh, this is after enzalutamide treatment, you're more likely to have a, a PSA response, shown here, a decrease in your PSA. Uh, if you were ARV7 negative, if you were ARV7 positive, uh, you were less likely to have a response. And the same goes for abiraterone as well. So here's a biomarker that's currently in commercial use uh, that can help uh, predict response to these agents. Now, its uptake has been a little bit more limited, uh, in part because uh, many of our uh, medical oncology colleagues will go ahead and try a patient on one of these agents. If they don't see a response, then they'll just go ahead and, and change therapy rather than spend the money to, to do this. Uh, there's also some concern about heterogeneity of disease in response uh, to, to these drugs as well, whether it really can fully inform you when you're thinking about moving forward with this type of therapy. So, uh, take-home points, docetaxel remains the first-line chemotherapy for metastatic CRPC, and it's generally used after oral inhibitors. Remember, there are situations we'll, where we'll go straight to docetaxel with rapidly progressive disease or visceral disease. ECOG performance status is important to know and be aware of, and comorbidities can help guide therapy. Uh, cabazitaxel is not inferior uh, to uh, at 20 versus 25, but is much less toxic. And platinum chemotherapy has a role in advanced prostate cancer. And as we begin to think about the future, we're going to likely be utilizing this in more, in more frequently in the future uh, as we begin to see selection of these uh, neuroendocrine and small cell variants. And then finally, there are biomarkers that are beginning to be developed that may identify mechanisms of resistance and that may be useful in the future. So, thanks. Okay, my job is to bring it home. Okay, I'm going to talk about immunotherapy and future approaches. Uh, clearly, the immunotherapy is going to be on, on label, uh, but most of the future uh, approaches are going to be off label. So just recognize that as I go through these. So these, again, are my disclosures. Again, I want to recognize both Matt Cooperberg and, Cooperberg and Evan Yu, who uh, uh, contributed some of the materials to this talk. So this is our question. In patients with castrate-resistant prostate cancer, apalutamide and enzalutamide, have demonstrated improved survival in A, metastasis-free survival in M1 castrate-resistant disease, Meta B is metastasis-free survival in M0 castrate-resistant prostate cancer, C is metastasis-free and overall survival in the M0 castrate-resistant state, and D is metastasis-free and overall survival in M1 castrate-resistant prostate cancer. This is the Spartan and PROSPER trials that were mentioned earlier. So. Yes, good. This is the right answer. Improved metastasis-free survival in the M0 state. Okay, 
So, oh, we have a second question. Improved overall survival in men with castrate-resistant prostate cancer has been demonstrated with which one of these immunotherapeutic agents? CYPT, Prostvac, Ipilipimab, or Pembro, I'll just say Pembro, Pembrozilumab. It's a mouthful, isn't it? Particularly at the end of a long week. Excellent. Well, and so if the answer is CYPT. Prostvac, unfortunately, which we're not going to talk about, didn't show an advantage. So it's being explored in other disease states. Okay, so this is the landscape of immunotherapy for prostate cancer. Basically, we have CYPT down here, which is working on the angin-presenting cells. We have Prostvac up here, which is a, a vaccine. And then we have at least two sets of agents, uh, IPI and then the uh, PDL1 inhibitors, which are called checkpoint inhibitors. Both of these are called checkpoint inhibitors, which uh, uh, stimulate the immune system by uh, decreasing the uh, body's ability or to downregulate the immune response. So immunotherapy, CYPT, is the only approved treatment in this space. Uh, PROSVAC, unfortunately, despite overwhelmingly positive Phase two data, did not demonstrate a benefit in the Phase three trial. Ipilipimab, which is a anti-CTL4 and therefore also a checkpoint inhibitor, unfortunately failed in a Phase three trial. The p-value was so close. It was 0.06, I believe. Uh, but anyway, it's, uh, it was not approved because it didn't reach its, uh, its, its, uh, predisposed, uh, its predefined endpoint. And then uh, the pdl one inhibitors are very promising, and we're going to talk a little bit about those, uh, but they have not actually proven to be efficacious in this disease yet. So CYPT, the mechanism of action, basically the an, an antigen, which is uh, the uh, prostate acid phosphatase, is uh, fused to GMCSF, and then it is uh, infused into uh, the antigen-presenting cells, which have been removed from the patient, are exposed ex vivo. Uh, the end result is that the antigen is processed, brought to the surface of the antigen-presenting cell. It's now an activated antigen-presenting cell. This antigen-presenting cell, which had been removed from the patient by phoresis, is now placed back into the patient. These uh, cells then uh, uh, activate uh, the T cells in the body, and those T cells in the body attack the cancer cell. This is all on the basis of the IMPACT trial, which was a, a trial in patients that had asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic metastatic disease. That's very important because the indication, again, is for asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic disease. Emphasize that point. They're randomized two to one, uh, and uh, actually they were given, the patients who were uh, unfortunately randomized to the placebo were given an opportunity to take uh, the phoresis product at a slightly later date and possibly a slightly uh, less efficacious product. And what you can see here is the upper curve is the CYPT, the bottom line is the, uh, is the placebo, and you can see a benefit from about 25.8 uh, about months from 21.7 months, so roughly a four-month improvement in survival, and a hazard ratio of just under 0.8. And this was statistically significant. Importantly, no PSA response. And that's one of the problems that patients, uh, pa well, patients and physicians have with this treatment is they don't see what they commonly like to see, which is the PSA come down. But if I had my choice of an overall survival advantage or a drop in PSA, I'd take the overall survival advantage. Adverse effects uh, are, it's very well tolerated. Essentially, 
all of these uh, sort of side effects from chills, pyrexia, headache, influenza, myalgia. What does that sound like? Sounds like the flu. And that's essentially how these patients feel, and you treat them. Uh, I wouldn't recommend chicken soup, but, you know, Tylenol, Motrin, things that you would treat somebody with the flu. Hydration. So the AUA statement guidelines for this, clinicians should offer abiraterone, prednisone, and zalutamide, docetaxel, or CYP-T to patients with asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic metastatic castrate-resistant disease with good performance status. You don't offer CYP-T to patients with symptomatic disease or poor performance status. Okay, future direction. So the, re the rest of this is essential. Uh, it's not. Future, we'll do future directions, and then I'm going to talk a little about the uh, Prosper and Spartan trials. So uh, this is the uh, part of the uh, immunotherapy where the checkpoint inhibitors work. Uh, 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 Pembro and, and atolizumab are both affect uh, the, uh, uh, are both pdl one inhibitors. So uh, there is some data out there, weak data, preliminary data, that actually shows that Pembro is actually useful in patients who have uh, 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 prostate cancer. So this is the Keynote uh, 028 trial. It's a basket trial, which means that multiple different disease states, uh, excuse me, multiple different diseases were put into uh, this basket trial. Uh, 23 of these patients uh, were uh, prostate cancer patients who received uh, Pembro. Uh, there were some A&Es, uh, and you saw at a primary endpoint, about three had uh, a, a, a partial response, uh, nine had stable disease, uh, and uh, disease progression occurred in eight. And, you know, when you look at this, it's really hard to say that, boy, wow, this is a huge benefit, this is a decrease. These patients had to have measurable disease, uh, and uh, it, you can't really see anybody who had a drop in their measurable disease, correct? And when you look at this, it sort of appears to be all over the map, responders and non-responders. We're going to come back to that in a second, okay? Even though that's not great data, I think it's important to recognize the, the data uh, that uh, Dr. Gerard showed us earlier and how important it is and essentially the same thing, this is almost exactly the same slide, sort of highlighting how these patients that have DNA repair alterations, it occurs in about 23% of metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancers, and, and, and then again in the germline of roughly 18% of patients, excuse me, 12% of patients who have metastatic disease. So why is that important? Because these drugs, these pdl one inhibitors, seem to work better in patients that have mismatch repair enzyme defects. Uh, so tumors that can't repair their DNA seem to do respond better to these uh, pdl one inhibitors. And why would that be the case? Well, they can't. They have highly mutated tumors creating a lot of neoantigens that, that the body can then recognize. So if you look at this, this is not just prostate cancer, though it does include some prostate cancer. It includes a lot of colorectal cancer as well. Colorectal cancer that are either repaired uh, uh, proficient, repaired deficient, or other non-rectal cancers that are, are deficient. And what you can see is these are the ones that, are, 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 uh, that have a DNA repair intact, and they don't respond so well to uh, Pembro. But the patients that are either uh, uh, are deficient, either the colorectal cancers or the other cancers, these are the ones that seem to have the best response in this waterfall <laughs> plot. And if they just limited their analysis to colorectal cancer, those that are mismatch repair deficient had improved overall survival compared to those who were uh, had good DNA repair. So essentially what this is telling us is this is a subset of patients that might actually respond to this particular drug if they have defects in DNA repair. Now, other drugs are also appear to be targeting DNA repair. So it's important to understand, uh, to understand PARP inhibition, you need to understand just a tiny bit about DNA repair. 
when there's a break in the DNA, the DNA can do one of two, thi two things. It can go through PARP and it can repair its DNA. This is a single-strand a single break. Or it can become a double-strand break, and a normal cell will repair this through homologous, re homologous recombination. Mouthful. Important thing is patients that have BRCA mutant cell, either because of the germline or because of the tumor itself, they can't repair their DNA this way. So if you block PARP here, the cell is forced to go through the double-strand break. It can't repair it because it's BRCA2 mutant, and the cell dies. And this is actually proven to be the case in patients. So this is a rather nice tr uh, trial published a few years ago by uh, De Bono's group, essentially looking at uh, uh, patients that were receiving a PARP inhibitor. That's what a laparib is. Uh, and they had defects in DNA repair. And what you can see when you look at progression-free survival, the patients that were marker positive lived approximately, and these are patients with end-stage, very advanced disease. And they still managed to live, it was three months on the PARP negative, excuse me, the biomarker negative, the ones that had intact DNA repair, but those that had poor DNA repair lived on average almost 10 months. And the overall, excuse me, this is progression-free survival, the overall survival was just as dramatic, with an improvement of uh, almost a doubling of the patient's survival. So uh, this is obviously very important, and as we move into uh, biomarkers being paired with therapy, uh, this is uh, our first example of how well this is going to work. There are so many ongoing PARP trials, I decided not to include all of them, but the bottom line is, my guess within the year or two, we'll be learning more and more about these different treatments, and it's something that you should feel facile in, in terms of discovering with your medical, discussing with your medical oncology colleagues. So uh, this is the data that's been presented a couple of times, so I'll just reiterate it again. We have new data on antrum blockade in M the M0 space, both the Spartan trial and the PROSPER trial. Uh, these are patients that have non-metastatic castrate-resistant disease. Patients were randomized two to one to apalutamide versus placebo, and uh, the endpoint was progression. This is one of the few times that the FDA has uh, allowed a metastasis-free survival endpoint in order to uh, allow FDA approval. So this is the dramatic difference between, uh, in, in terms of metastatic disease, uh, which was uh, with a hazard ratio of 0.28, which is fairly dramatic. We look at, uh, and I think this is uh, an important plot that shows us, you know, usually we find one subgroup, it's more effective than those who are a little older, those who are a little younger, those who have different Gleason scores. Bottom line is, Every disease, every, every, no matter how we slice and dice the subgroups, it looks like everybody benefited uh, from this treatment. Uh, overall survival, there is a separation of the two curves. The p-value is getting close to significant, and they're going to continue to follow these patients out. But the bottom line is it didn't achieve statistical significance yet. PROSPER was almost exactly the same trial, and I don't want to drive it home uh, 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 too far. It still needs to be, still needs to be published. You see almost a, a, an identical improvement in metastasis-free uh, survival. Uh, this sort of staircase uh, sort of uh, plot is mostly because of when the imaging was done at regular intervals, about every three months. And you can see an improvement which is fairly dramatic, more than a doubling uh, of the median uh, metastasis-free survival. Again, all groups appear to benefit in terms of metastasis-free survival. And again, no improvement in overall survival yet. The hazard ratio is 0.8. Uh, and uh, it doesn't even come that close to a statistically significant. One of the problems and the reason why the FDA uh, went with a metastasis-free survival endpoint is, number one, some nice work by Chris Sweeney uh, in, call, in a trial called IceGap demonstrated that if a patient develops metastatic disease, they're going to die of prostate cancer. 
I think that sounds sort of very obvious to clinicians who take care of metastatic prostate cancer, but nobody had shown that yet. And the problem that we have is patients are getting more and more drugs, so it's harder and harder to prove that somebody's uh, going to, going to uh, survive. Th these patients out here that are failing, they're getting multiple different other agents, which confuses the picture. So in the last thing, in the last uh, six minutes, I want to go uh, through is something that's near and dear to my heart, which is integrating systemic therapy with local therapy. So this is our paradigm of, of disease state. They progress from local disease to metastatic disease to end-stage disease. And the data that was showed very nicely uh, by Dr. Gerard showed that we have an improvement in survival of two to four months, not a home run. If we move it into the metastatic disease state, castrate-sensitive, now we have an improvement in survival that's somewhere between 12 and 24 months. And what I'm willing to bet is that if we treat localized, high-risk localized disease, people that are highly likely to develop or have metastatic disease, cult metastatic disease, we can cure patients that are currently incurable. So we have a multimodality program that's been going on not only at my institution, but many of our uh, other institutions that we collaborate with, like University of Michigan, uh, University of Washington, Seattle, uh, and Hopkins, uh, and, and many other, many other uh, places where we go ahead and we take intermediate and high-risk prostate cancer, we randomize these patients to intense systemic therapy versus less intense systemic therapy, and then we do surgery on them and we see how it looks. And really what we're trying to do is find whether we can completely eradicate the disease or get rid of the most of the disease in the prostate, and that our hypothesis is if you kill the cancer in the prostate, you've probably killed any micrometastatic disease. So uh, biochemical, we have so much data on this, I can't present it all in just uh, in, in even an hour, but I want to focus on our, our study looking at biochemical recurrence-free survival. We took 72 patients. We've probably done this in about 500 patients, but we don't have all the data on all of them. So we took uh, 72 of these patients that were treated in three of our neoadjuvant trials at our site, University of Washington, the BI Deaconess Medical Center. And we wanted to assess time to biochemical recurrence uh, and time to metastatic disease. And really what we're interested in is whether the minimal disease construct we've come up with, where there's very little disease left in the prostate, whether that does correlate with a patient's outcome. So the patients clearly have very aggressive disease. Uh, you know, 26 uh, or a third had at least in seven, but the vast majority had eight, nine, and even 10. Uh, roughly 25% uh, had intermediate disease. Almost three-quarters had high-risk disease. And this is the time to biochemical recurrence. And what you can see is there is a recurrence rate, uh, roughly 23%, 23, so roughly a third of our patients had a biochemical recurrence at a median time of about 5.1 years. And uh, th this translates to a three-year biochemical recurrence rate of 70%. Uh, normal testosterone, obviously these are very strong hormonal agents we're using, uh, uh, like enzalutamide, abiraterone, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and apalutamide. And so a normal testosterone is an important metric. And in a year, about, about uh, almost all the patients had a normal testosterone. Time to, to metastatic disease, we actually have, believe it or not, even uh, uh, in such a small study, this just shows how high risk the cancers are. Roughly 7% uh, 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 developed metastatic disease. And the three-year metastasis-free survival was 95%. We actually had one death. Uh, we compared what our cohort looked like uh, in the prostate. Uh, and with our biochemical recurrence rate to what Memorial Sloan Kettering's nomogram would have predicted. And you can see that our recurrence rate is a little less, our organ-confined disease is a little bit greater, our extracapsular disease a little less, lymph node disease a little less, and seminal vesicle involvement a little bit more. I think this is globally consistent with us actually affecting the cancer in the prostate. 
Uh, so just to clarify, this is not, uh, this is if we took the exact same patients, we just plugged their characteristics into the nomogram, this is what we would have expected if we did surgery in these patients. Now, when we looked at pathologic parameters for biochemical recurrence, what we see is if time to biochemical recurrence, if pathologically downstaged, and all the patients, or I should say none of the patients who had a pathologic downstaging had a recurrence, whereas the patients who did not, who did not respond, they had the recurrences. And if you had minimal disease or a complete response, none of the patients recurred, whereas if you had residual disease, uh, that there was a recurrence rate which is completely consistent with our hypothesis that if you eradicate the local tumor, you're going to eradicate the metastatic disease and the patient's going to live longer. Unfortunately, it's also consistent with the hypothesis that if you eradicate the disease in the prostate, the patient didn't have metastatic disease. That's why when you do a randomized trial to actually prove this is the case. So in conclusion, CYPT is the only FDA-approved immunotherapy in our armamentarium right now. You hear about a lot of exciting drugs out there. Those drugs are going to come, to come to fruition. I'm convinced of it. But which one and which disease state I think remains to be proven. Apalutamide and enzalutamide are now, uh, well, I should say will, are or will be approved in this M0 castrate-resistant prostate cancer space, which I think is a big leap forward. I think when that overall survival uh, curves play out, we're going to see a fairly tremendous improvement in survival in these patients because I believe in that paradigm that earlier treatment does a better job of curing our patients. And lastly, so I think the future is bright. We're going to have new targets and earlier treatment. I think that's going to translate to our patients living longer and more productive lives. Thank you.